Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem, partner and mobility and sustainability global practice lead at award-winning tech investment bank, Drake Star. On this season of the podcast, we're hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous, moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, I speak with Mark Frohenmeyer, founder and CEO of Archimoto, makers of FUVs, fun utility vehicles, and fleet solutions for emergency services and last mile delivery. The company is based in Oregon, and Mark graduated from UC Berkeley in 1996 with a degree in electrical engineering and computer science. After 11 years leading advanced technology projects in the game development industry and the sale of his first startup, Garage Games, he turned his energy towards solving the worldwide problems of sustainable transportation. As CEO of Archimoto, he has led the team from concept to startup in 2007 through the NASDAQ-listed Reggae IPO. Mark also founded the Equal Vote Coalition in 2014, and he remains connected to the gaming industry as the executive producer of Marble It Up. We spoke about growing up with Legos, what games can teach us about people, why Mark built Archimoto for himself first, the perils of automotive manufacturing and homologation, their place in autonomy, the Cambrian explosion of mobility, and much more. Thanks, Mark, for being on Accelerated. Um, I appreciate your time. You're doing some really fascinating things in the automotive industry. And in my day job as an investment banker focused on mobility and sustainability, this is an area near and dear to my heart. So uh, why don't we start at the beginning? Where did you grow up and what were you into as a kid? Uh, so I actually grew up here in Eugene, Oregon. Um, I was into, as a, as a, as a small child, I uh, played, a lot of, uh, played a lot with Legos and uh, climbed trees and then became fascinated with computers. My parents got a, an Apple II when I was seven, and so that, uh, that began my, my programming and gaming career. Yeah, I, I'm similar to you, Lego Technic, I think, for me when I was a kid. So probably about the same. Now, you, you then went to, uh, you went to UC Berkeley, you studied double E and computer science, and you graduated uh, right into the middle of the dot-com mania here in Bay Area. Uh, how did your career begin? So I actually, I moved back to Oregon after college to start working in computer games. Um, I, Eugene was home to one of the very early uh, storied names in gaming, a company called Dynamics. So I, I started working, building, you know, 3D simulations and uh, network multiplayer games. Uh, did that for about six years before splitting off with a few other guys to start, uh, start our own company in you know kind of this is like phase two of the dot-com rush you know 2001 era and we were really focused on bringing independent uh, gamers the technology independent game developers the technology and tools that they would need to make their own games um, that was really the sort of the the mission of of garage games was to accelerate uh independent gaming uh as a as a market and as a place for creators to uh bring bring their works to life now you you jumped out and became an entrepreneur relatively quickly you you worked for somebody else you know for the beginning of your career but you know kind of in your mid-20s you jumped out and and what uh, what inspired you in entrepreneurship what what kind of helped you make that decision you know i i never imagined uh growing up that i would be an entrepreneur it wasn't really on my radar actually um but uh jeff tonell who was one of my uh, co-founders at garage games you know basically came to me with this idea and said, you know, you need to, you need to quit and we need to go develop a, a, a commercial grade game engine and then, you know, basically give it away to the world. 
And it was, it was in, uh, you know, right in that moment, realizing that that entrepreneurship could be a vehicle for change. Um, and in this case, it was you know, freeing, freeing the great masses of unwashed game developers from, uh, you know, sort of the shackles of corporate game development. Um, but that certainly carried over into Arkimoto when uh, you know, that, that there are some things in the world, there are some changes that are best made um, by governments. There are some changes that are best made uh, by nonprofits, uh, but there are some and, and particularly um, changes that have a business model attached to them uh, are, can actually be really more rapidly accomplished by starting a new company to take it on. That's a that's a great foundation that uh, that we're building here on on kind of some of these thoughts. Now, um, what what interested about you know what was interesting for you uh, as a gamer? Were you kind of a gamer kid and you wanted to continue that and build a career around it, or kind of what interested you in the gaming industry? It, ga games just always fascinate. I was always fascinated with you know how did and this is you know you think back to the era of of the Apple II or the early IBM PC. You know, you'd have these game developers make these really, truly compelling experiences with with not a lot of hardware. And so I was just game. I was just always fascinated by you know how did they how did they make that thing happen in the game? How did they create that cool graphical effect or uh, or whatever? And so that was a, a lot of my learning of programming was just trying to figure out how how it was done. And I think games just as even as a discipline of computer science they just cover the full spectrum. I mean, you have, if you think about a, a modern game, you've got uh, super advanced 3D graphics, artificial intelligence, um, uh, advanced network uh, uh, topologies and all kinds of different um, algorithms for making it all work out, all in service of some, hopefully some interesting narrative that that uh, that keeps people um, entertained and, and learning cool new things. So, um, I think for me, it was just gaming was just always this really wide open field of creative expression. If you could figure out a way um, to to pull it off using very limited resources and hardware. Yeah, I mean, gaming is quite the science. I actually studied computer and video imaging in college, and uh, nice. I was uh, <laughs> I played games maybe when I was a little bit younger, but I never got into it the same way. I was interested more in the graphics part of it uh, when I was starting out. But, um, you know, I think gaming also teaches us a lot about people and psychology and uh, those kind of things. Can you share some things you learned about people, you know, kind of creating games and the psychology behind this? Oh, yeah. Well, 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 there, there, I guess there, there, there are kind of two ways to look at that. One, one is the, the psychology of people working together to solve a problem or to create something. So, as, and particularly this is when I started developing games commercially it was with a, a big team. I'd, I'd never worked on a team of 35 people all working on the same thing for a couple of years. Um, and so you certainly learn a lot about teamwork, particularly within a creative process. Um, and then we were also building team games. We, uh, the, the first full commercial game I worked on is a game called Starsheet Tribes. Uh, and it was one of the uh, you know, very first you know, 32 player internet networked indoor outdoor team uh action game with jetpacks um and it was all about you know capture the flag and various different variations on team play games and one of the things i, I definitely learned in that process was 
that as we would make small tweaks to the rules, that it would it could really impact how much fun everybody had playing the game. You know, the the ideal for a game developer is that everyone has fun playing your game, whether you're winning or losing. That there's some something um, you can still have as many people as possible experience the joy of of the experience you're trying to create. Um, and I think that's that's left me with a lot of thoughts just around. Uh, you know, sort of even into the political process and how we how we structure uh, the rules of of our of our society. Um, that if we if we focused a little bit more on making sure everyone was having fun, I think everyone would have a lot more fun. That's great. That's uh, you know, I'm, I'm always curious about kind of these these things that trans transfer from one one experience to another for us entrepreneurs. Now, um, you went from a career in gaming for quite quite a number of years to starting an automotive company. Um, what made you want to make that transition? Well, I, it was it was actually a, a sort of a whole series of things. In in the game, when when we would make games, it was we were typically making the games that we wanted to play. Um, so. That was I, I, I was always uh, impressed by people who could make a game for somebody else that they themselves didn't actually want to play. Um, but I was I was never that way. I always wanted to part of the, um, the the fun of working on it was was the end result and having something that I guess um, that I could be a reasonable judge of. Uh, and after we sold so we sold garage games in 2007. And at that point, um, yeah, I think I, I'd always had the sense that I wanted to make games until I figured out what I really wanted to do with my life. Um, and looking at the world in 2007, the writing was clearly on the wall in terms of environmental degradation and destruction and the looming crisis of climate change. So initially, I just wanted to, I, I, I was at that point car free, I was a bicycle commuter. Um, but I had just moved into a house and I occasionally needed to get around town in a more sedentary way that had better carrying capacity. And so I went looking for a vehicle to buy and I, I just, I couldn't find one that met, um, a pretty reasonable set of requirements. Yeah. You know, I, I needed, needed to be electric, needed to be small footprint, uh, really optimized for that, that daily type trip. Um, and I wanted something that, that would be affordable so that if I could, if, if I bought it, uh, then, you know, other people who thought it was cool might be able to buy it too and uh, make at least a small impact on at least my own personal emissions. And when, when I couldn't find it, I, I was I, I was literally scouring the internet for months looking for the right thing and tried out the gem car, considered a Tesla reservation. And then I saw a, a three-wheeled kit vehicle in a parade here in Eugene. And it was just, that was kind of that light bulb moment. And what the light bulb really illuminated was the, just a giant gap between the bike and the car. And then in the three-wheeled space, there was really just a, a lot of untracked powder. A lot of, uh, you know, there have been, you know, there was a century of, of sort of, of, of nice tries and lots of near misses, but nobody really nailed that that real daily driving, uh, really cool, really fun solution for, you know, just sort of everyday trips. And in, in getting one of those kits and uh, uh, arm twisting some friends into helping put it together, I, I, that was when I sort of realized, well, you know, a, a vehicle is just a, a Lego set for big kids with, uh, and, and if we change the parts 
and change how we put them together, we might move from this kind of super niche product to something that could uh, eventually become truly mainstream. And I think coming out of my first startup uh, with a with a healthy exit um, left me with a sense of irrational exuberance that I was uh, somehow a, a gifted entrepreneur, and that startups were easy. Um, came to find out that was that was not accurate. Uh, that there are there are some that are easy, and there are some that are that are very very hard. And vehicles are uh, incredibly challenging. Yeah, a good way to become a millionaire in the automotive industry is to start as a billionaire, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, um, I mean, you seem to be a mission-driven person, obviously, and, and I'm sure there's a mission behind Arkimoto. Um, what, you know, what, what's kind of the stated mission of the company? Uh, they, to build products that catalyze the shift to a sustainable transportation system. Um, and what that really has, has uh, I think, clarified into is right-sizing the footprint of of transport you know we there's this huge disconnect between um the trips we take you know sort of how we use cars and what cars are actually capable of a car is four to five thousand pounds of metal uh designed to carry five to seven people around and yet we almost always drive them alone or with just one other person going to get a cup of coffee or go to work or go to school or whatever uh, and all of that over capacity when you multiply it by everyone, just creates massive systemic inefficiency. Uh, we're we're all you, know, you look at a if you if you're on a packed highway with an empty carpool lane, you know you're realizing wait a minute everyone in this traffic jam is driving alone because if if we weren't we'd be over in the carpool lane. Um, so so that's uh, you know that's. The the footprint really, I think, is is sort of the initial piece of it. Uh, obviously, the move to electrification is is a no brainer when it comes to transportation efficiency and emissions and the ability to be powered by renewables. Um, and then, kind of the final piece of the puzzle is better utilizing the vehicles that we have because we in the in the individual ownership model, you know, our cars sit parked and rusting for like ninety five percent of their lives. Um, so it's this ridiculously quickly depreciating asset that we don't actually really use. So um, what are the, how can we layer in different uh, technology stacks in order to better share vehicles uh, so that we don't have to, we quite literally pave over almost half of our urban land for cars. And so uh, when it comes to uh, both sustainability and just basic livability of the spaces we live in, um, I think we can do a lot better by changing uh, the, the types of vehicles that we use for the vast majority of our trips. Yeah, I mean, just because we, we've done it in the past, it doesn't mean we need to continue having these vehicles in the form factors that, uh, that existed. Yeah, and, and it, it, when, when, when gas is cheap and, and gas has about 25 times the energy density of batteries, um, then that, that size factor uh, really doesn't cost you that much. Um, but in when you've got a, a battery-powered vehicle, and particularly when you have really you know phones with apps on them that can communicate and reserve things when you need them, and then you have uh, driverless technologies that can actually bring a vehicle to you when you need it, um, all of a sudden that that sort of one-size-fits-all, uh, you know, the, the Swiss Army knife, I've got to own it approach. Uh, I think I think we can do a lot better than that. 
um, both in terms of the experience of it. And then ultimately, it should cost a lot less for all of us, um, particularly when you factor in things like the climate. No, that, that's great. And uh, tell us about the vehicles. Tell us about uh, the type of vehicles Arkhamoto makes. Yeah, so Arkhamoto builds three-wheeled electric vehicles. Two wheels in front, one wheel in back. Uh, you actually sit uh, with your feet on either side of the battery pack. So the battery pack is a spine uh, that goes down the center line of the vehicle, right on the bottom plane. So low center of gravity. The drivetrain is in front. Uh, it's actually a dual motor front wheel drive platform. Uh, so we're... we're and this came from uh, literally years of iteration on three-wheel vehicles. So we built in total eight generations of distinct three-wheel vehicle designs to land where we did. Um, but in, in, in a lot of three-wheelers, the design fights itself. So if you put, your, put the drivetrain in the back, you want to weight the back wheel in order to provide traction, but you, wanna, you really want the weight to be up front for stability. And so... That, that underlying platform, the, the battery down the center, the drivetrain with the motors forward to the front axle center line, that defines our really the, the bulk of our product family is all sits on that same common platform. And then the, the actual product that we launched with is called the fun utility vehicle, the FUV. It seats two people comfortably. Uh, I'm 6'4", so I'm, I'm kind of our sizing dummy. And I fit comfortably front and back in the vehicle that, that really is not much larger than uh, a big uh, touring motorcycle. You can actually, you can park three of them in one space. Uh, they're, they're very easy to maneuver through uh, dense traffic. Um, and then we've, we've sort of differentiated that product line to include things like the deliberator where we take out the back seat and now the whole back end of the vehicle uh, is, is, is a big, box for last mile delivery. We have a flatbed version. Um, we have a, a version that's just kind of a pure fun machine in the form of the Roadster, built special purpose versions for security called the one called the rapid responder. Uh, but all of those products really are are largely the same. Like 90, 95% of the parts are the same, all additive to the same economy of scale. I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking. Get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot net slash pitching for more information. See you there. And um, you probably had to develop some technologies of your own as you dove into this. You couldn't buy everything off the shelf. Uh, what what are some of the unique components that you have to create? So we've built uh, we we build our own battery packs. We don't we don't make cells, but we assemble the packs ourselves. Um, largely, our initial production vehicle was uh, you know sort of put together out of, of parts that were available. Uh, we had to 
we had to develop we we would only develop things that that we couldn't get off the shelf so our as an example our dual motor gearbox um that is arkimoto ip the the battery pack is arkimoto ip but a lot of it uh, a lot of the vehicle is just um the uh, i would i would say that the um well thought through assembly of available things uh as we look to mass production we we are going through a process of you know really through every single part of the vehicle and saying does it make sense to build this or buy this and so we've done actually quite a lot of technology development um in the in the push towards uh true mass production uh but a lot of those programs won't actually you know make it into the product family for anywhere from 12 to 24 months. Now, um, this is your first foray into the automotive industry, and uh, it's a tough one. A tough, tough nut to crack. There have been a lot of uh, a, a lot of companies <laughs> that uh, that couldn't make it. But you know, tell us a little bit what you learned about the automotive manufacturing process through all of this. Uh, well, it's a lot actually. Um, I've been at this now for 14 years, so yeah, there. Uh, it's it's. Uh, um, it is it is it is not an easy business. It, it's certainly there are there are many case studies of of what didn't work out. Um, it I, I would say that what I've learned probably the most over time is just you know that that the that the best part is no part at all. Um, that every that everything that you put into the product in a vehicle application is sub subject to um, really extreme in, extreme environments. Uh, lots of wear and tear and abuse, um, and that the it really the the more you can simplify before you put it on the road, um, the the really the better it is for the long haul. Um, we work we've been working with uh, Sandy Monroe and his team at Monroe and Associates now for uh, about a year and a half, and uh sandy has had one slide in his his initial presentation that's that's always stuck with me which is this uh the the shadow that design casts over the rest of um the automotive organization uh that that design is typically only a, a very small portion of the cost uh of the program but its impact is felt through uh manufacturing warranty marketing sales all the rest um and that that has really i think um particularly as we're pushing to scale you know we're we are aiming to get it right the first time yeah i mean you mean design of the 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 vehicle not not necessarily the industrial design not the exterior but the how you design the vehicle and the componentry and everything inside exactly yeah how all the parts go together what what do you make each part out of how can you how can you simplify and combine things um and that's it's at every level it's it's the you know you can look at it kind of on the gross chassis level all the way down to inside of every component that you use and have you had some of the same issues recently i mean last year and a half now with uh, supply chain and and the battery supply which is becoming more constrained oh yeah how has that affected you guys no question well it's just been a um it's been an enormous challenge uh, particularly for our materials team, uh, they've just been moving mountains to make sure that the line has the parts that, that we need to build vehicles and get them out the door. Um, and this is, uh, compounded by the fact that we, you know, we're in our sort of initial first several hundred vehicles. 
uh, and surfacing all of the wrinkles that come out of a new vehicle design. You know, I don't, it, it, it doesn't matter um, what company you're talking about, those first uh, 500 vehicles of a new electric vehicle program are bound to have all sorts of little gotchas. And so unwrinkling all of those while dealing with uh, COVID and massive supply chain disruptions, it's been a, it's been an interesting exercise. Yeah, quite an adventure, it sounds like. Now, let's shift gears a little bit to autonomy. What are your thoughts? I mean, is, is autonomy something that you think about for your vehicles? Um... For sure. Yeah, no, th th and that's that's been on the roadmap literally since the beginning of Arkhamoto in 2007. Um, so I, I was, uh, even, even while developing games, was uh, keeping a close eye on the DARPA Grand Challenge and the DARPA Urban Challenge. These were like, you know, incredibly challenging AI-driven uh contests that nobody had won and then finally i think i think stanford won the the grand challenge and then carnegie mellon got upset and they went and won the urban challenge right after that and then google hired, hired all those guys to start the google self-driving car team um and that was really right at the beginning of arkimoto so the 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 argument that i i, I would sort of have these sustainable transportation arguments with Jeff, uh, who is my co-founder at Garage Games, about what you know, what is the real answer for sustainable transportation? And uh, my contention was always, it's you know, it's going to be super lightweight uh, pod vehicles that you can summon at will, and they'll take you where you want to go. What that has evolved into uh, for Arkhamoto is that we we have made sure as we've been developing the vehicle platform that it was going to be a good host to self-driving technologies. Um, we are not presently working on our own, uh, you know, sensor and software stack, but we're making sure that the vehicle platform itself can accept a range of different self-driving technologies. And when we look at it from the business model point of view, it's really, it, it is all about reducing the cost of shared vehicle usage models. So particularly with the, with the fun utility vehicle, because it is just so much fun to drive. You don't actually want it to be your robo-taxi, but it would be very convenient if you could just summon whatever Arkhamoto you wanted with the touch of a button on your phone. Uh, and that's a program that we are calling Robo-Valet, uh, which, is, which is, and the nice uh, thing about that particular challenge is it's a much lower technology bar than the full self-driving works every single time robo-taxi on all roads in all conditions, you you can you can actually constrain the problem much more um, if you know it's only going to be operating at low speed. It's only going to be driving autonomously or driverlessly when there's no human in the vehicle, um, and that its main goal is to get it is is really to bring the vehicle or uh, or vehicles that you need um, closer to where the customer is, uh, and that's. So, so as we look at autonomy, we see a, a, a clear roadmap of, of sort of shippable intermediaries that all chip away at that share at, at, a, at a variety of different shared vehicle usage models and do so in a way that we think um, carries substantially less technology risk than having to having to shoot for the moon of, of the full robo taxi before you can really start to leverage that investment. When companies start to catch fire and blitz scale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. 
At Drake Star Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across US and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com. So it sounds like you're you're pretty much ready for it, but uh, you want to provide maybe assistive technologies first. Uh, so you have drive-by wire and everything implemented, or is it still kind of an analog system? Yeah, so it's a, it's drive-by wire uh, of the of the basic controls of the vehicle, uh, steering, throttle, regen, um, and then as as we we have actually teamed up with uh, a company down in the Bay Area called Faction, and they've actually put their whole um, self-driving and, and driverless remote control stack onto the Arcimoto platform, uh, both as a, you know, for us, it's, it's, a, it's a proof of concept and validation of that approach. And then, you know, actually now it's a question of what are the real business models that we can build on top of that? Yeah. I mean, with a, with a low, uh, low price vehicle, like Arcimoto makes that, that probably adds a substantial, the, the sensor stack adds substantial cost to the vehicle. <laughs> right. So that's depending uh, on, depending yeah. on what you use. Yeah. So that's, uh, and, and our goal there again, is just to develop the lowest cost, uh, most useful platform for everyday mobility. And that has, uh, we, we think a, a lot of potential utility in things like autonomous delivery. Uh, and certainly the robo valet, which actually helps uh, us in terms of developing the right kind of rideshare models. Very interesting. And um, just switching gears to the finance side of it, I mean, um, you've famously taken the company public via Reg A. You didn't do a SPAC. You didn't do an IPO. Um, most audience, obviously, as an investment banker, I know what Reg A is, but it would be great if you can explain uh, what it is and how you come you you came to this um, this way of taking the company public. Yeah. So, well, so um, reggae is like the, it's the IRI IPO. Anyway, it's the, uh, uh, it, it's a, you know, a, a, I would say a more cost efficient version of an S1 um, for raises of, I, did they up the cap on it to 75? At one point it was, when we, when we went public, it was up to a maximum uh, raise size of uh, 50 million. Um, Bill Hambrecht, who was our uh, w was the sole venture investor in Arkimoto was one of the big proponents of the the reggae changes in the Jobs Act, and so you know his his notion was um, this company is a it's a mission driven company in the public interest. Uh, it should be a public company, and I'm gonna you know I'll do your Series A, but then let's uh, let's let's take you public quickly thereafter um, in order to to be in the public market. We were actually the second uh, uh, pure EV play publicly traded company after Tesla in on the Nasdaq market, and we we over the course of the last year uh, and a half or so, we were definitely confused uh, by by many as a SPAC play. But we've actually been in the public markets now for more than four years. So um, I actually have a yeah. You, you can go back, read all our filings, uh, watch the earnings webinars. 
um, and see the progress out there. But you know, to me, I, I really did that that approach made sense to me as far as uh, we we are we've had so many people want to be a part of um, you know a part of the experience. And being a public company just means that you can vote with your product choices and you can vote with your investment dollars in the things that you believe in. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it gives an opportunity for early supporters to actually participate and, and uh, take part in the company as if they would be early employees uh, getting stock options in a, in a similar way. And uh, tell us a little bit kind of how the response in the community that you've built uh, now that you're you're almost starting to do big volume, but you probably have a lot of pre-orders and, and the community waiting for the for the vehicles. Uh, yeah, and I, I think there are, there are varying degrees of patience amongst our pre-order customers, some of whom have been waiting a very long time for vehicles. Um, and we've, we just have to balance that with being able to roll out the business, right? So we, wherever we ship vehicles, we need to be able to take care of them, uh, need to have the right partners in place. And then there's, of course, a whole patchwork of uh, regulations in terms of market-by-market market entry uh, that we've got to pay attention to. But uh, I, I I love the Arkhamoto community when we have a, a bunch of people out there who've been pushing us along for years and years and years who have really believed in uh, the company's mission and the team that's pulling it off. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, I'm I'm very grateful for the stakeholders out there that have that have really you know, stuck by us and and pushed us along the way. Yeah, I think for a lot of brands, especially in 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 the automotive world, uh, it's very important to build that community, build that following. And the fan base um, to to follow around the brand because it's not just getting from point A to point B, but it's that experience that that's a differentiator. Um, I didn't ask you actually uh, on homologation, kind of how does the vehicle sit? Did you have to do crash testing, and are you low speed qualified, or how how are the vehicles classified? It is no, it's a it, it's a motorcycle. Hmm. So all three wheelers that you see out there are motorcycles um, by regulation. The where we have added things that are not typically present on a motorcycle, we have taken due care to test those things. So as an example, the, you know, we added a roof. So we did the automotive roof crush test to make sure that the cage would hold up. We added dual seat belts, so two three-point harnesses for each passenger. Um, and so we tested, we did sled tests, we did uh, uh, pull tests on the mounting points uh, to make sure that those voluntarily added safety components perform as they should. Uh, but it is, you know, it's a 1300 pound motorcycle. It is not a 4,500 pound car. It could still hurt, right? <laughs> 1300 pounds. Yeah. So, um, you know, what do you see personal mobility in the next 10 years? I mean, it's really interesting to see how things have changed. Even, you know, micro mobility in this concept was, was stand up with kick scooters and, and electric bikes. That's relatively new. And it's really, uh, grown like a weed. Uh, what do you, where do you see us going in the next 10 years? Well, I, when you look at where, well, one, phenomenal adoption of electric bicycles, um, that market has just, you know, it's, it's on a hockey stick going up. Um, you have governmental, you know, sort of forcing functions, uh, cities that are banning cars in certain areas of towns, uh, banning internal combustion engines, and then just all the really, I, I, I was talking to a friend a couple of years ago, and he called it the the sort of the Cambrian explosion of mobility, where you've got uh, just the 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 miniaturization of electronics, um, the uh, the connectivity to mobile devices, um, and uh, and you know better and better batteries 
has meant that there are just a lot more form factors that we can start playing around with. Um, and you know, I, I would say the Arkimoto first platform is an example of a vehicle that is, you know, sort of, it, it is a born electric vehicle platform. It's designed around uh, the battery. It's designed around uh, electric motors for the drivetrain versus being sort of a, a pre-existing pattern that we're putting uh, a new drivetrain into. And I, I think that's going to be particularly, I, I think that the area of growth that I see really is in that less than a car space. Um, that's where I think that really the hotness is. Um, and so we're, uh, you know, we have, we have our first platform, which is our, our, our kind of everyday electric replacement for the car. That's much smaller and much more efficient. Uh, but we also see huge opportunity in the, what I would call the true micromobility space. Um, and we're actually in development of a second platform, um, that we've been working on now for, uh, more than a year. That is all about really rethinking the much lighter weight class of vehicles. So where where the FUV is, you know, 1,300 pounds, we're targeting 1,000. Um, platform two is more like sub 100 pound vehicle that solves that real micromobility part of the puzzle. Yeah, it sounds like a portable portable vehicle, and, and I won't uh, pull the strings and, and and ask you to reveal too much. Well, yeah, yeah <laughs> stay tuned. It's we're we're gonna be pulling the wraps off it here soon. Great, great. Now, um, switching gears again, um, you're also involved uh, with uh, what you created as uh, the STAR Voting Method and Equal Vote Co Coalition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, there's, there's something deeply wrong with our political system, uh, as I think we are all um, painfully aware uh, that, that we, we actually have a, a political system and voting system that, that divide the people. And it, it really, uh, in, in a lot of ways, comes down to the way that we cast our ballots um, and that we are limited always to one choice on the ballot. It, that, that, uh, um, that system of plurality voting that we use, or first past the post, or a bunch of, but you, you can call it choose only one, that system of voting inevitably devolves into a polarized two-party uh, dominated system. And as the, the more cycles that you run it, the worse it gets. So we've been running it now for a couple hundred years, and we're uh, we're seeing just the um, you know the, the the that wedge growing uh, wider and wider and wider. And so the the purpose of uh, I ultimately came to realize was that that limit of a single choice on the ballot is actually a fundamental inequality amongst the voters. And you can think about this. Uh, the easiest way to think about this is if if you like. Let's say there are three candidates running. You like two of them. I like just one. Uh, then I have effectively double the voting power that you do, because everyone who thinks like you is going to divide their votes between the two candidates on your side, right? And that's why we always end up with just two polar opposite frontrunner candidates and really no other options. So what star voting does is instead of saying you're going to get to vote on one person. Uh, in this race, you actually get to assign stars, zero, zero bad, five good to uh, as many candidates on the ballot as you want. Uh, and what that does from, from a, a voter equality point of view is it makes everyone's vote expression equal. Because if there are two candidates that you like, you can give them both five stars. The one candidate I like, I give that one five stars. And now if you, if you add up the results, uh, everyone's moved forward one space on the chessboard, and you and I cast equal and opposite votes. Um, and that that really that is 
that that is what became the test of balance, uh, sort of the 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 equality criterion for voting, um, and and the Equal Vote Coalition, which which was the spin out of uh, my first foray into um, a, a ballot measure to reform Oregon's uh, voting system, um, it is, is is really dedicated to uh, making sure. Uh, that we get voting systems that actually provide equal power to the voters and and free us. I mean, ultimately, we want to be freed from the compulsion to always vote for the lesser evil, to vote against candidates we might really like because they're, you know, unelectable. And so you have all these sort of self-fulfilling feedback loops that are are really ultimately toxic to um to a good democracy. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think a lot of times people are faced with extreme simplification, and um, uh, I'm like you, very politically aware and active. But uh, I think most of the population, unfortunately, doesn't have the bandwidth, the mental bandwidth, to to jump through all the hoops to make good choices um, for 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 their economic class. Yeah, and and particularly when you get trapped into a, a system where you you really feel like your vote doesn't count because you can't. Uh, you know, you're you're anytime you're compelled to vote against the candidate that you actually think would do the best job. Um, that's a bad system. That's that that turns people away from the political process, turns people away from engaging uh, and and leads to the belief that, um, you know, it's 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 a it's a rigged system or it's but it's not it's not that it's rigged. It's just the the basic counting algorithm is just totally broken. Um, so. I've, I've a lot of optimism that it can be uh, th- that it can be fixed, um, but then also, you know, there are, there are a lot of stakeholders in the game who don't want to see the rules change. So it's a, that that one is also a very heavy lift. Well, I, I applaud you on that effort. Um, if anybody is interested who's listening to this, where can they learn more about uh, the Star Voting Method and Equal Vote Coalition? Uh, if you go to StarVoting.us or Equal.Vote in your web browser, you can you can start. Going way down that rabbit hole. It's a great, great deep rabbit hole. That's great. Uh, thanks for doing that. Now, a um, couple of questions that I've left more kind of on the personal level. How much time these days do you spend on gaming? How much? How much time do you have, and, and where do you invest it? Very, very little. Uh, I've uh, I have one um, game project that I'm involved with very peripherally called Marble It Up, um, which is a uh, you you play a marble. And you roll through fantastic 3D worlds. It's all sorts of fun. But uh, uh, Arkhamoto at this point really occupies um, the vast, vast, vast majority of my waking hours and bandwidth. I can only imagine. Now, uh, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself? You know, starting your career right out of school into the dot com, into the middle of the dot com uh, frenzy. Wow. I think uh, I, I think I I'd, I'd probably give my side more more even towards the beginning of of Arkhamoto, but it is just sort of be methodical take take the time to really understand the problem before diving headfirst into it i think i could it could have saved myself a little time here and there yeah i can definitely um i can definitely feel you on that one i've, I've gone through the same uh, so that's great advice no really appreciate it mark i appreciate your time i appreciate uh, the efforts you're making uh, both with Arkimoto and the equal vote coalition very interesting as well at least to me um i think our audience is going to find it fascinating and i think they'd love to learn more about Arkimoto out there and um, maybe get in get in your vehicles so really appreciate your time uh thanks again being on accelerated 
Hey, hey, my pleasure. And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and plug the ride of the Arcanauts. We're now doing a, um, we, we just, uh, at the end of, at the end of this year, ending a few weeks ago, we kicked off kind of our beta test of, of our idea of an infinite roadshow, uh, where we're going to be taking Arcimotos everywhere in order to get people to have an actual experience, a direct experience of the vehicle, um, all over the country. And so uh, if you want to, if you want to sign up when we're in your neighborhood, go to arcimoto.com slash ride. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll let you know when we're in the, in the hood. That's a great idea. I think uh, that's the number one uh, factor that everybody is, uh, I won't mention names, but companies have said that the, the best way for them to convert to EV at least is by people experiencing it. So yep. that's a great idea. Thanks again, Mark. We appreciate, uh, really appreciate you being on the show. Good luck with everything and with, Ar with Arkimoto uh, starting to ship uh, production product now. That was my conversation with Mark Frochenmeier, founder and CEO of Arkimoto. If you'd like to connect with me to discuss mobility and sustainability, you can find me online at golem.net. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform and share with your friends. We'll see you on the next episode.